Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right. I am here with Glenn Kelman, CEO of Redfin. Glenn, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I was lucky enough to work with Glenn. He invited me to come and keynote Redferno, not only a great name, but a great event for Redfin. And immediately as I as I had a chance to listen to him, not only in the call that we had beforehand, but as we got ready to to take the stage and I had a chance to see him address his company, I thought, this is a man I want to come and give the opportunity to share his ideas with my listeners. So let's just dive right into it. Glenn, you are the CEO of Redfin, a customer-first, technology-powered real estate broker. So I guess my first question is this. What is a customer-first, technology-powered real estate broker? Oh, well, Redfin started by building a real estate website, and then we decided that if we really wanted to make real estate better, we had to become a real estate brokerage, which means that we hired a bunch of real estate agents, and together we work to put the customer first, tell you the truth about a house. If the driveway has a bad slope or the power lines are going to give you cancer, we want you to know that. Our job isn't just to sell you a house, it's to help you make this really important decision. And I think much of it's informed by this idea that people are in this deeply altered state when they buy a house, they've lost their job, or they put a parent in a nursing home, or they've broken up with their boyfriend, or they're just moving across town and the kids are scared about a new school. And so they just really, really need someone who's totally and completely on their side. That's what we want to do by using technology to give people data, but also by hiring a real estate agent who's paid on customer satisfaction and not just getting a sale. So how did it come to be? What's the genesis of Redfin? What did, made you take a look and say, something has to change in this industry? Uh, well, the genesis of Redfin was the invention of map-based real estate search. So we were the first ones to figure out that location, location, location is what matters in real estate. So we put listing data on a map. As you pan around the map, you can see different houses. Um, but then we had to decide what we really wanted to do with that business because you're going to get people coming to the website. You have to decide if you want to hand them off to a traditional real estate agent or be that agent yourself. And what was hard about that was it was so definitional or ideological. I thought of myself as a software person and we decided to become a real estate broker, which is quite a different profession, but it was the only way we could make a difference in the real world by operating in the real world. And that was born out of our own experience trying to buy and sell homes. We always felt like there were plenty of good people in that business, but sometimes the incentives around getting the sale uh, weren't what made us most comfortable when having to make such an important decision. And so you decided that you wanted to be a customer first real estate broker. Did you think the industry wasn't customer first entirely or what sort of said that's what's going to set Redfin aside? Uh, well, I do think that the real estate industry is very sales driven. Most of the people who work in real estate are paid 100% on commissions. You get the commission whether the customer gets the right house or the wrong house. And so you just have plenty of good people who are working in real estate, but often in a system that creates distrust between the agent and the consumer. And then you bring to that, you know, your own background. So in my case, not only had I tried to buy a house, but I had just considered a major shift in my career where I almost became a doctor in my 30s after starting Plum Tree with a couple of friends. I'd made some money and I just really wanted to do something that was deeply moral. My wife is a doctor and I applied to medical school and went on this crazy walk all over town when I had to decide whether to go. And I just told her I couldn't do it, but that I want to do business because it was creative and all these other things. She just made me commit that if it's going to be a business, it has to be something that does good in the world or you will hate yourself. You will go crazy and you will drive me crazy along with it. So I just have this commitment that Red Pen can't just be a profitable thing. It has to be a good thing. And that's actually made it much easier to build a business that can go through the ups and downs of real estate and everything else. If you have a, a sense of mission, it can be a real rudder uh, for the company and for yourself. 
Now, you actually do something at Redfin, correct me if I'm wrong, that others don't do. You actually offer a refund to the customer on the broker commission. Can you explain mm-hmm. what that means to any listeners who might not know? Sure. So um, we charge about half the price to sell a house. And that's very straightforward because um, you know the seller is paying you directly. But for a buyer, uh, that person is paid by the seller. Um, so the seller gives us a fee um, for bringing a buyer to the transaction. And we refund anywhere between a third and half the fee, depending on the price of the home. So someone gets $3,000, $5,000, back at closing. Um, and the premise behind this is that if you're going to use technology to meet customers in a very cost-effective way, you'd have plenty of money left over um, to give the customer at the end of the transaction. So if you're really going to build a customer-first brokerage, yes, you'd have an agent who was on the customer side. Yes, you'd use technology to share all this data with the customer about what the house is really like, but you'd also give them the money. People want good value. And sometimes when you work in real estate, uh, you don't feel that you're really delivering great value. Um, home prices have gone up year after year after year, um, and the percentage that real estate agents earn from that home um, hasn't changed that much. And we just thought there was an opportunity, at least for us, uh, to offer consumers a better value. And that was just one of the most meaningful ways we could put them first. And, and it seems to me that when you hear that, you'd think, okay, obviously that's going to be really appealing to customers. But in doing some research, I discovered there came a time when you found out you could eliminate <laughs> that refund and it wouldn't yeah. actually affect customer demand. Tell us a little How bit about that realization. That I, I dig in, my friend. I dig in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm impressed. Well, uh, so one thing is very clear that when you're selling a home, you're very price sensitive. People really care about the value that we bring to them. But it turns out that when you work with buyers, they're convinced that the real estate agent is free because you're paid by the seller anyway. And so we offer a refund that puts off as many people as it draws in. Every time we've run the analysis, what we discover is that giving people thousands of dollars at closing is something everyone always appreciates by the time they get to the closing table, but when you promise to do it, um, it doesn't actually draw people in. Some people worry that there has to be a catch or that you're cutting corners or that you don't have good real estate agents. And in fact, as far as we can tell, our customer service is much better. We've measured it over and over and over again. Um, And yet here we have this data that just indicates that when we haven't promised people savings, they still want to work with us in the same exact proportions that they did before. And so at some point, we shared this data with our board because these are folks who have helped us fund the business. And we told them that there have literally been hundreds of millions of dollars that we've given consumers that if we had kept for ourselves would not have affected our demand whatsoever. And at that point, I just expected the board to say, well, mission be danged, we should um, do the rational thing and eliminate that refund. Um, and I was digging in to fight for it when one of our board members asked one of the happiest questions anyone's ever asked me, which is, can you name a great company that was built by an entirely rational person? If you really feel this emotional connection to a product, it's because the people who were building that product actually felt an emotional connection to it too, that they did it not just because the numbers told them that they'd make more money uh, by having it be this way instead of that way, but because they just believed in it, gosh darn it. So our company had this gut check at that moment where we decided that we really were going to be mission driven that even if it didn't make sense uh, to give people money because it didn't actually get more of them to try us out, we were going to do it because we knew they loved it later on and that that was the way to build a lasting business. And I felt so much better about Redfin ever since. The crazy thing about it, which I think you may have read, is just that it's one thing to have irrational convictions. It's one thing to be really analytical, but to try to be both is what will drive you crazy. When you know um, that the data tells you one thing and you still decide uh, to do another, you only get a few of those decisions, uh, but they better be based on something really deep. And in this case, it was. That's amazing. Well, let, let's dive right into that because you talk about being mission-driven and staying core mm-hmm. to, to the straight-up values. So this is really where we try to dive in in this podcast. And, and so let's talk mm-hmm. about the values that drive you, and then we can talk about how mm-hmm. they're related to, to Redfin. So I always ask our guests the, the, the magical 
I guess we could call it the the stalker question. If someone followed you around for 30 days and mm. and saw everything that you did, and then I asked them, all right, mm-hmm. you've, you've watched Glenn for mm-hmm. a month of his life. What are the three mm-hmm. values that drive him? What three mm-hmm. values do you hope that person would say? Well, I want to answer your question directly, but I should also comment that I think one challenge I have with answering the question is this idea that I'm this paragon of virtue or this paragon of business vision. Um, Redfin is this collective effort and more often the people I work with are right and more often I learn from them and I know that we always try to make humble sounds but that's truly how I feel. Um, And so you know, it would probably be appalling if someone followed me around all the goofy, stupid things that I say and do. Um, but here's what I hope I would um, represent. And I think the first thing is kindness. The reason that we were drawn to you, Drew, is because you were the only person that really gave kindness a voice in the business world. That in our everyday life, we can be kind, not just to our kids or to our spouse, uh, but to all the people we do commerce with, to all the people we meet on a day-to-day basis. And that's an especially poignant point for us because we work in the shadow of some of the largest technology companies here in Seattle that are known for having this amazing drive. And so we think there's a way to balance that. And the challenge that we have is how can we be just as fast and just as profitable and just as successful as the most cutthroat business in the world and still treat our customers with kindness and treat one another with kindness. And obviously if you aspire to do that, when you have enough drive to be a CEO, because fundamentally for reasons I can't even explain, I'm a deeply driven person. Um, that is the conundrum to have that drive and to still be kind. And when I go home at night and just reflect on whether I made the company more valuable or whether I was the person I really wanted to be, often the shortcoming was in kindness that I made somebody feel bad about a product mistake or um, some kind of uh, challenge that we're facing. And it didn't really help us solve the problem at all. Um, It made me feel terrible. It made the other person feel even worse. And so the thing that I think we're most deliberate about is how we can have all of our actions be informed by some level of kindness and still be a real business. Um, So that's the first thing that drew us to you and and the first thing that I wanted to talk about here. But it is coupled with this other trait, which is some kind of rigor. And what I mean by that is, you know, often kind people can just sort of let anything go. Anything can be permitted. And I think there's a moral component to it where you have some sense of rectitude of what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, when someone has done something wrong, you're still able to stand up and say, that's not what I believe in, um, even if it is uncomfortable to do so. And then there's sort of a, an, an analytical level of rectitude or an intellectual kind of rigor. Uh, you know, I don't know if Simon Cowell of American Idol is the best avatar of that, but just someone who says, we can do better. Um, let's dig deeper to make sure that is really true or to make sure that is really right. And I think being one way or the other is really easy, um, but being both is the trick. That's what's really hard is somehow having these really high standards, um, you know, as a business leader, as a parent, um, morally or intellectually, um, but doing that in a way where people can really learn from it um, instead of just feeling crappy about it. So those are the first two that came to mind. And then the last one, Drew, would probably be some kind of authenticity. I just feel like the business world is so fake. It's so baloney gorged and just people want to be able to be their true selves. And what that means is that I'm not such an impressive CEO, um, that we're all just sort of goofy people and being able to be that way and still be taken seriously, uh, to me is just such a relief. Um, not trying to be, like some business person on TV or um, 
in a book or something, but just really being myself, I think can permit other people to be, to be themselves too. That's it. And that's fascinating, especially, you know, I'd like to dive into to each of these here, but let's talk about authenticity a little bit. And, and you said once that the greatest companies aren't an idea, they're an idea machine. And what I found mm-hmm. interesting about the concept is you went on to say, you know, a, a, the company's deepest innovation isn't its product, but it's its being. And you talked about how important and idiosyncratic and almost bizarre from the outside way of mm-hmm. doing things was what's important. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you deal with making what you know now you're in charge of of many hundreds of thousands of people's life you know incomes mm-hmm. in life how, how do you continue to strive to make decisions that you you straight up said it's you know it's the million tiny acts of discipline and bizarre decisions that alienates most outsiders how do you deal mm-hmm. with that as somebody who as you you know you start up and you're in someone's basement no doubt and i think you believe yeah. that redfin really was someone's basement uh, or, or plum tree, and then you start making decisions, and more and more people are impacted by those decisions. How do you continue mm-hmm. to try to be authentic, doing what worked all the way along, knowing mm-hmm. that every time now it's not just your life on the line, it's other people's? How do you stay authentic knowing that? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly think there's plenty of pressure to be conventional. Um, the more money you raise, the more people you hire, the more you are surrounded by consultants that are really trying to make your business like every other business. And so some of it requires just conviction. Um, you know, sometimes I've talked about my childhood. I think other people have had similar childhoods where the whole thing just seemed like this giant scientific experiment to prove that a human being can't die of shame. If I were trying to fit in, um, I would have failed at that so long ago. So I brought to the Redfin experience, to the Plumtree experience, to every experience that I've had, this deep sense that there's no use in even trying to be like everybody else because you'll only fail at it. And so now we have employees all the time who just sort of say at the end of whatever meeting they have with me, the thing that is most important to them, which is to keep Redfin weird, um, to have it stand for something that's a little bit different, a little bit goofier, um, even as you know, we face the pressures of a company that could go public and, and you know, that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars and done all these other things. Um, I think you have to start with what you really believe in and you have to tell everyone that that's how it is because if you try to lay it in later, it's really hard. So, you know, just talking to the company about, or to the board about, um, this idea that we should save consumers money, what set the stage for that conversation to go in such a productive direction was that we'd always been clear that we were mission driven. Um, you know, some of the folks who signed up to support the company, uh, really loved this idea that we were going to put the customer first, but then when they had to pay for it, that was that was hard. And so I think if you get everyone to agree with first principles, uh, then it's just much easier to remind them later, hey, we already talked about this. This is what we believe in. And then the other thing that I think is just really important is um, – to just model that behavior yourself. You know, it's important for me to say, oh my gosh, I was totally wrong. Or, oh my gosh, that was a better idea. Um, or, you know, tell some embarrassing story about myself because it's weird now. People don't even think of me as a human being. They don't think of me as Glenn. They think of me as the CEO and some of them haven't even met me. Um, and that's just sort of hard to get over. And my job is to tell them to get over it because they're never going to be able to have a better idea than mine if they have too much deference to me. Which is interesting too, because we, we talk about that difference, that tension between kindness and rigor, that mm-hmm. kindness, uh, well, how would you define kindness? Cause we talked to, or you talked about having to infuse it and wanting to show it. But I guess one of the challenges mm-hmm. is how do we actually define it? So if someone said to you, okay, we want to show kindness to our customers. We want to show mm-hmm. kindness within the company, but what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What do you tell them? Uh, well, you know, I would just use examples. I mean, if somebody <laughs> screws up, um, which happens all the time. I do it more than anybody else here at Red 10. I just think, well, how would I want to be told about that? Would I want to be told in front of a group of people or would I want to be told privately? And would I want someone to fixate on what I'd done in the past that I can't possibly fix or just how we could do better the next time? Um, 
And I think the most important thing is that everybody has something essential about himself or herself that you have to appreciate before you get permission to say anything else to him. So maybe somebody you know, really prides himself on a sense of humor or someone else really loves her creativity and design sense. And I think if you don't appreciate that, if you steamroll over that to get to the point that's important to you, they're never going to hear that. Um, so you have to sort of appreciate every human being. And a lot of times, if you've got 10 meetings in a day and you're just feeling more busy than ever, you just don't take time to sort of appreciate what that person values about herself and also just where she's coming from. You know, maybe her kids, you know, threw a fit at breakfast and then she got a flat tire on the way to work and she comes into this meeting with a head of steam and, and so do you and you ruin each other's day. So it's hard to have that level of empathy all the time because sooner or later you're just saying, I just want to get this done. Um, so that's the balance. But I think everybody knows how to be kind. What's hard is, is actually getting yourself to do it. Well, it's a lot easier to stand up for an ideal than it is to live up to one. It is something yeah. that I've always been yeah. a big fan of. And it's, it's tough too, yeah. because you've lived your whole life in startups, correct? Yeah. Now, you once said that startups, like professional football, are best done by the most desperate people on the planet. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, this is probably a complaint in part about just how well-funded some startups now are. Um, It's very easy to go out and get the money to found a company. Um, but I think you have to be really desperate because you've got to work faster and harder than anybody else. You've got to understand what the customer really wants in a deeper way than anybody else. And I've never thought I was the smartest person in the room. Um, I just always thought I was the one who needed it the most. And so what I look for when I hire people yeah, it would be great to have brains, um, and obviously integrity is required, but I also look for somebody who's got to prove something, who's got a chip on her shoulder, who has this desperate need to make it happen. Um, because every day you kind of go home, and some days you got something done, and some days you didn't. But for me, when I don't get something done, it actually makes me miserable. I still feel, after all these years, this level of desperation. Um, to make a difference, to feel important. And some of it is not driven by what the company needs. It's driven by what I need. I need to feel like whatever product I worked on or whatever customer problem I tackled, that I made a difference. Um, And my main goal now as the leader of the company or one of the leaders of the company is to convince people that they make a difference because nothing is more futile uh, than being a cog in a machine. And so you kind of have to bring that level of desperation to a wide range of tasks. Uh, otherwise, um, it's just a living death. And, and now, how do you infuse, you talk about the importance of showing kindness to all the people mm-hmm. that you work mm-hmm. with, your clients. How do you balance that desperation that you have to feel <laughs> because you think it makes you better with kindness for yourself first and foremost? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the hard thing. Uh, that's the hard thing. I mean, there are plenty of nights where I come home and I really feel like I haven't been a kind person that I've just been a desperate person. And then the rest of the nights I come home and I say, yeah, (laughs) I've told my wife, you know, they shouldn't even call it work. They should call it talk. I shouldn't even wear a pair of blue jeans and a button down shirt. I should wear a cheer Kings outfit because Mostly all I do is just say, that's great. Keep going or more of that. Wonderful. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of caught between these two poles on one hand, uh, you want to be kind and encouraging. And on the other hand, you want to be driven and desperate. And I think you just have to find the middle ground. And for me, that middle ground consists of being really clear about having high standards. So rather than surprising somebody later, um, with the fact that I'm the most desperate man on the planet, I just tell them right up front that this company, this project, I just expect your best. And when you give that to the project, um, it is going to be so worthwhile. You are going to be so proud of what you did here. And I need to make sure that I take time to recognize that because sometimes 
it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we certainly notice when it doesn't work, but we forget to really catch people doing good things to notice when people really do knock it out of the park. And so I think just really celebrating um, when, when someone does well um, is something that driven people don't always do. Um, and it's just something that, you know, I'm still making sure that I do every day. Um, you know, I try to think, okay, well, what went well today? And did you tell the people who are associated with that, that it went well? Um, but I think that's the, that's the conundrum. It's still a hard balance to strike. And, and I think you really hit an important thing that, that people kind of gloss over. When someone asked me once, like, what is the first thing that you want to tell people when you start being like getting real about leadership. And I never really like get real about leadership, but I really, I thought for a moment and realized that it's like, well, leadership kind of sucks sometimes. I mean, we like to talk about all the wonderful things to celebrate uh-huh. it and you get to go on podcasts and host podcasts. But the challenge yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I, I think you hit it right here too, that like, let's ask this. I mean, you're the CEO. You said it's very important to be up to be upfront about the fact that you expect excellence and that you're driven for that. Is it being kind to someone when they don't reach that and you don't tell them, because this is something I think we all gloss over. Like kindness is important mm-hmm. to recognize people, so, uh, to celebrate that. But are we being kind to someone who doesn't meet the standards that we've set and we just let it mm-hmm. slide? I've always wanted to, to ask you know, someone who's in a CEO position that very question is, is, are you being kind to someone when they aren't delivering their best and you just kind of let it slide? No, I think the obvious answer is no. But what's hard is the kinds of people who really enjoy uh, early stage companies in particular, startups, um, are often emotional people. Um, You know, I think you have to have just not only a deep appetite for risk, but some deep emotional need to make something new, to build a product. And I think it's hard as the company grows to make sure those emotions are always channeled in a positive direction. Um, you know, when I was at Plumtree, one of the co-founders at Plumtree came up to me, Joe McVeigh, and he just said that you've got this amazing ability to make people feel so good. And I started to smile. And then he said, but sometimes you make people feel so bad. It's a superpower. I wish that I had it, but since you're the one who has it, you need to make sure that it's used in the right way. And I just think a lot of people who have that superpower really struggle to channel it. And I do too. You know, there are times when I just care so much about the project that we're working on um, that I forget about the people who are working on it. And, um, you know, I say, well, why didn't you do it this way? Or why isn't it better in this way? And, you know, first of all, I might be wrong um, about whether my ideas are really better. And then second, uh, the way that I've expressed it, you know, hasn't helped us actually make a better product. And I, I just think you have to acknowledge that the kinds of people who start out doing it themselves and then later graduate to this leadership task, getting other people to do it, are not well suited to that leadership task um, because all the emotional assets that we have can become liabilities. Oh, that's a great, all the emotional assets we have can become liabilities. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Now, it's, it's, what's interesting is that, you know, as you get older, you have a chance to look back and reflect on that. Mm-hmm. And a big part of what I, I try to do with the podcast is get people to go back, you know, the whole idea of day mm-hmm. one. And what I found interesting is I was researching you. You have a twin brother, correct? I do. Okay. And, and this is what I, a story I read is you used to stand behind a fence and yell at older kids, Hey, big kids screw off and then see how far you could run before you got caught. Like uh-huh. how much of that? And see, I find that interesting. Like there's an, obviously is what you were just talking about is like, there's a certain drive in you uh, that how much of that approach to life remains today? Would you say? Oh, well, I think I still have a deeply, anti-authoritarian streak. (laughs) You know, uh, the end of that story is that eventually a big kid catches you and there was this moment of empathy that he had for me because of course I'd embarrassed him so he had to beat me up. But before he did that, he just really wanted to know why I would say such an awful thing to him. And I just told him, I just don't like big kids. (laughs) And got my ass kicked. 
and I still feel that way. Like every once in a while, I find myself getting feisty with our board, and there's no real reason for it. They're trying to help us build the company too, and it's because I just don't like being told what to do. Um, and so uh, I think that kind of individualistic approach um, can also be a liability um, in a larger company. Um, you may think that a CEO is never really confined by any rules or authority, but in fact, um, you are. You know, you have to follow the same rules as everyone else. If you don't wash your dishes in the sink like everyone else, the whole company's going to go to hell. And so, um, you know, it's an adjustment for me, and it's obviously something that's been good for me. Um, you know, the weird thing about software is you can be a pretty antisocial person and run a software company, but you cannot be an antisocial person and run a software company that has also got a thousand real estate agents. You know, those are folks who make their living talking to other people and they expect to be able to talk to you. Well, imagine you went back and, and, and talked to that kid standing mm -hmm. behind the fence. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you know, let's get into the idea of day one. Like, let's say that that kid represents you on day one. So you can go back mm -hmm. and sit down and sit across from him. Mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. Give me a couple of things about the world that you've learned since that day standing behind the fence and getting chased mm -hmm. that you tell that kid now. The most important thing is that we are all a work in progress. Um, you know, one thing I like to say is that the happiest people in the world are born again. Um, I am not um, uh, a born again Christian or a born again Muslim, but I have noticed that the people who are born again in religion are just insanely happy. And my theory behind it is that they have developed a model of the world in which their old self was bad and their new self is good. And they are committed to becoming a good person rather than defending the person they used to be. And there's this model of the mind. I think it was first promulgated by William James or somebody like that who just said that your brain is this fortress and it's designed to protect you from reality. And when it has to confront a new fact, um, the fortress just tries to exclude that fact if it isn't good for the fortress. And then if it has to accommodate that fact, it doesn't say, well, what's the accommodation that's most likely to be the best one? It says, what's the smallest possible accommodation I can make? So we're always trying to avoid changing. And, you know, even at the age of 15 or 17 or 18, and especially by the time I was you know, 25 and um, co-founding Plumtree, I was trying to prove that I didn't have to change, that I was already good enough, um, that I could run the company, for example. And that's the reason I didn't get to run the company, actually. Um, at Plumtree, I think if I'd shown a little bit of humility and said that I wanted to learn how to be a good leader, um, I would have gotten to run that business. And Basically, it took you know a near-death experience where I nearly got canned for the company I started uh, because I had my head so far up my butt uh, where I just thought about all the things that the guy who would replace me or the woman who would replace me would do after I got fired and they got to do my job. They thought, oh my gosh, if I get another shot at this company, I'm going to change everything. Um, and that's sort of the great night of the, skull, the soul that, that St. Augustine talks about. Um, where, where you think I've really got to change. And then I got to keep the job and, um, and I changed a lot and I suddenly got a lot happier. And so now I try to be more invested in the person I'm going to be than the person I have been more invested in trying to get it right than having been right. And I don't always manage that, but when I do, the company is better and I am much better. So we're all a work in progress. Let's say that you could ask, this is what, what I love, the, the magic imagination, mm -hmm. right? So imagine that you could, uh, you could give that version of yourself, that young version of yourself on day one, one question. And what I'm basically saying is you give them a commitment to do something every day. You give them one question that they have to have an answer for by the end of each day for the rest of their life. What question would you give them? So basically you have a chance to make sure that that younger version of you does something every single day. What question would you say? You know what? You want your life to be better? Make sure you have an answer for this question by the end of every 24-hour period. What question would you give? I would just be, 
whether you were the person you wanted to be. I mean, I don't think most people struggle with their ideals. They struggle with living up to them, as you said. You know, it was strange when I got married to my wife. She made me go to this Unitarian church because she wanted to have a preacher marry us. And I thought it was such a crock. But I had to get down on my knees every week and just sit there for a minute and think about how to become a better person. And I loved it. I mean, I didn't love it enough to keep going. I should probably go every Sunday. But um, it was just a humility um, that I was unaccustomed to. And something about the physicality of it, of actually kind of having to close my eyes and, and, and do that, and then standing up and giving the person on your right and the person on your left a hug, uh, did something for me. And so, uh, you know, we know what to do. We, we just have to have a moment to reflect on whether we actually did it. And there's no, there's no science to that. There's just a lot of effort. So how are you the person that you want to be today is something that you'd want yourself to answer every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ask myself that every day now. Now, what value do you think is the core behind that? I always say that any question that you ask, Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and you've seen me, me talk about this. So any question you ask at its core is you saying, if I answer this question, I'm going to better live a value. What value do you think is the one driving that question? Uh, that people are basically good. You know, we all want to be good. Just sometimes we aren't. Sometimes we forget. Um, you know, having kids has really helped me because they're just always watching me. And, you know, instead of being a jerk, I, I just feel like I want them to see me be a good person. Um, and the first person who's always watching me is myself. And I just think you have to, you have to be your own worst critic. You, you really have to ask yourself, how did I affect other people? And, and what difference did I make? And, and, um, you know, that's a hard thing to ask yourself, but if you're not, you're just going to end up living a life that you didn't really intend. It's interesting you talk about I see you. I was actually at a conference recently, and after I spoke, they they had a member of the community, uh, someone who worked there, mm-hmm. get up, and they'd asked her to talk about gratitude. And she said, you know what, I've been trying to figure out uh, how to say, here we are, we all work together, and I feel powerfully about many of you, often, you know, mostly in good ways. Mm-hmm. But she said, mm-hmm. we, we never say I love you at work. It's just, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. appropriate, right? She goes, but I want to come mm-hmm. up with a, a shorthand for our company that allows mm-hmm. us to tell each other that we really care about each other. And what she said yeah. was, so here, all of us together today are going to agree on this. When we say, I see you, that's what we're saying. And you say, you know, you talk about your kids seeing you every day or you seeing yourself every day. Mm-hmm. I thought, what an interesting way, the power of saying to another human being, I see you, I see your work, I see the way that you do this. I see, yeah, it's a I powerful interesting. That. Yeah, isn't it interesting? I just loved, I wanted to offer that. I hadn't really talked to anybody about yeah. it, but you know, just saying to someone how powerful it can be, particularly, I guess, in your case, as the not only a leader in their daily lives, but someone who is acknowledged mm-hmm. as the positional leader, the power of saying, hey, I see the way you blank. That's all you really have to say because it carry everything else comes with it. I see you. I recognize it. I mm-hmm. care about it. But just the very phrase of saying I see you seems like such a powerful thing to do. Yeah. And, and yeah. You, talk, you talk about your kids. I read something that you wrote I thought was just brilliant. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on it to the to listeners. You said growing up is, the mo- is mostly the process of having to acknowledge the differences between your world and the whole world. What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Oh, well, just time and again, you have to revise your model of reality. You have to say that perhaps my dad is not the strongest man alive, or perhaps I'm not going to become a professional soccer player. Um, And through this series of concessions, uh, you kind of end up with a reduced set of expectations where you understand your real place in the world. And it may not be as narcissistic, um, but it might not be as exciting either. I mean, the larger point I was trying to make in that essay is that there is also a place um, to insist, to assert your own world, to say that this may not be the way real estate is now, but damn it, it's the way it ought to be. 
and to cling to that vision so tenaciously that you make it so. And you don't have to start a company to do that. You know, you can realize that vision in raising your children or in just the way you conduct your life. Um, but, you know, I've always had sort of an ax to grind um, with therapists and other people who are trying to get you to adjust to reality because reality is just what a bunch of dingbats collectively make together and we can all change it if we try. I mean, the laws of physics aren't going to be broken, but the way society works and the way life is at the office, that can change. And I think as a kid, you're taught just to bow down and at some point you have to stand up. And it's interesting because even the new realities, like it's weird because sometimes things have to be a reality for a while before anyone will challenge Mm -hmm. them. And I found it interesting that South by Southwest, you went and decided to challenge a a reality Mm -hmm. that's hardly been reality for a while, which was the idea that the next big thing, you know, the startup companies Mm -hmm. have to be software based, like it's all online. But you Mm -hmm. in Redfin in many ways, you talked about, you know, as a software engineer, Mm -hmm. you can be sort of antisocial, but you have thousands of real estate Mm -hmm. agents. Could you talk a little bit about that message you delivered in a speech a couple years ago at South Mm -hmm. by Southwest, Mm -hmm. which was, you know what, like stop, not every next big startup has to be just online. There's a different type of startup. Tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Well, I just worry about the schism in society. I mean, already we've got Wall Street and the rest of the world at each other's throats, but there is this schism between the technology elite and everyone else. It explains why Donald Trump is getting so many votes and why there's a big rich poor gap. And so to some extent, this isn't just about building a great company. I think the best way to make real estate better and the best way to make money in real estate is to combine technology with people to do something big and real. It's also just about the social obligations of a business. And I mention that now because there's so many businesses where you know you order a car uh, at the touch of a button or you get your dinner delivered or you have your house cleaned. And those businesses are basically created by a few software engineers trying to make a boatload of money Um, But with all the work being done by all these other folks who don't get a salary or healthcare benefits, let alone stock options. So part of this mission here is to reimagine um, how a business gets built. Um, where you know all the wonders of Silicon Valley, where you get a free lunch at Facebook or you get a massage at Google, aren't just for the engineers. They're for uh, the people who are doing the real work. And so whatever we do for our software folks, we do for everybody else. And that's because that's the kind of society we want to live in. So I think there's sort of a business argument that this is just a great way to make money. Um, you can really attack a much larger market when you're not just running a website and passing off the opportunities to traditional agents, but, but you're helping people buy the whole house. Um, but it's also an argument for, I don't know, just a, a different way that businesses can contribute to society. And that is by, by treating all the employees well, not just um, the guys with a computer science degree from Stanford. Now, as you rise up, it, well, obviously, you've, you know, you've got two successful mm-hmm. startups under your belt, if not more. Um, right now, you've got a company that's expanding a- across the United States, is disrupting the space. No doubt you get a lot of these calls. You, you get a, a lot of magazines mm-hmm. calling, let's do interviews. And so we're asking you questions. And, and obviously, uh, I, wanna, I love asking people this one. What's the toughest question you've ever been asked? As more and more people look mm-hmm. to you for answers, and as you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. there's some discomfort being like, well, why is everyone asking me? You know, I screw up as much as anyone. What's the toughest Mm -hmm. question you've ever been asked? Oh gosh. What's the toughest question I've ever been asked? Um, I think the hard questions that we've been asked are just around the balance of, of kind of profit and humanity. Um, you know, the, the thing that, the statement that annoys me the most might be that I have a fiduciary obligation to maximize shareholder value. And I take very seriously that we need to make money for our shareholders. Um, but maximizing their value, you know, I would just 
challenge what the time frame for that is because I think on the short frame, you know, the best thing we could do is just turn everyone upside down and shake all the money out of their pockets. But over the long run, if you want to build a lasting company, you have to treat not only your customers right, but your employees right. And so, you know, the challenge that, that I always struggle with is, um, you know, how to strike the right balance between profit, customer service, um, and employee pay. You know, those are kind of three ways you can allocate your resources. And uh, some of it has to go to profit, some of it has to go to the customer, and some of it has to go to the people who serve the customer. Um, and when somebody argues that it should all go just to the investor, just to profit, um, I think that can be a little short-sighted. And that's all about that. That seems that's been tradition. That's been habit. It's almost as if you don't have to think about it as the leader of a company. Well, obviously, let's revert to profit. Uh, I think David Foster Wallace said it great, where he said, you know, being cynical and and being sad, it's not a choice because it's so easy. So you're talking about changing and, and creating a habit of thinking a different way. I think habits yeah. are such an interesting thing in leaders. I find it interesting to to talk about habits with leaders. Can I, can I interrupt you for a yeah, minute? Of course. Have you ever heard, I, I can't remember the guy who wrote the Silver Linings playbook, but I heard the director talk about cynicism and sadness in that context, not just as the default, but as this luxury. So he had this kid, this is such a beautiful story. He had this kid who um, it turned out had suicidal thoughts and, and they actually put together a Silver Linings playbook for him because he had to see the, the bright side. Like I can go home and say, you know what? The world sucks and sort of luxuriate in the blues, but it's not a matter of life or death for me. I'm not going to grab a gun and put it in my mouth, but there are some people who can't even afford to indulge that kind of thinking. They have to go through the daily discipline, maybe the hourly discipline of seeing how things could be better. And once I thought of it that way as a luxury that not everyone even gets to have, I just said, you know what, I'm not even going to go there. And it's really helped me. Um, you know, some people love the movie, some people don't. But I love what the director said about the movie. It's really nice. What an interesting way, too, because when you think about it, uh, uh, Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind talks about the idea that meaning is the new money. So this whole mm -hmm. idea of this, really this whole podcast, this whole discussion of what are your values, mm -hmm. what do you mean, what do you want to do in the world? It is like the quintessential first world luxury thing to be able to do oh, yeah. for us to sit here and talk about, oh, well, what are you trying to do in the world yeah. when there's so yeah. many people who are desperately just trying to survive day to yeah. day? So that's a really interesting one is that wow, like being cynical is actually a luxury. That's a, I'm going to have to sit on that one too. Well, what, what? I was, I was talking about habits is like, obviously you have to think about consciously creating some mm -hmm. habits. What's one of the toughest things to make a habit in your life? What's, what's, what have you worked really hard to make a habit in your life at? Appreciating people. What's the challenge in doing that? Well, you just have to catch people doing good things. It's our nature to see the flaws in something. Um, you know, sometimes I catch myself, you know, opening a project where, you know, someone sent me a document or a product design or I'm test driving a new feature on our website. And I just got my lips pursed in such a way that it's obvious I expect it not to be good enough. Like my arms are already folded. If you can do that and still type on a keyboard. And then I think, oh, well, wait a minute. This is, you know, actually pretty good. Uh, but sometimes I just forget to say, oh, well, first of all, here's all the great stuff about this thing. Um, you know, people who start companies, people who run companies are by uh, their nature just impossible to please. Like if there was somebody who was more ambitious for Redfin, who, who, um, who was harder to please than I was, she should get the job to run the company. Like that is the first requirement is that you just have really high standards for, um, for the work that goes out the door. And when you're that way, when you're that hard to please, um, you still need to notice what does please you and make sure everybody else knows that too. Um, I don't know why I'm obsessed with this quote, but Robert Louis Stevenson, the guy who wrote Treasure Island, his wife called him the great exhilarator. Um, and... I would love, I would love to one day earn that name um, because obviously 
you know, whatever I'm able to do directly here is dwarfed by the impact that I have on other people. And so the daily habit I have to get into is of making other people feel really good, at least when they've earned it. And most of they have. This, this may be a tough question, but Glenn, do you care more about taking care of Redfin or taking care of yourself? Uh, well, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I would never sacrifice my children for uh, this company, like throw them into a volcano or something. But if, if I thought someone else could run the company better, I hope to God I would tell the board to fire me and put that person in charge. And that's something you really have to be honest with yourself about because you're going to realize it before anybody else does that somebody on your team could actually do a better job. And what's hard about that is how much I love the job. I love this job and I need it. I need it. It's not because I need the money per se. It's that it satisfies me and fulfills me at this really deep level. It's a mission I really believe in. It's a team I really love. And and to let go of all of that because I'm no longer the best person to be in charge. Um, I've actually wondered, you know, if I could ask her or ask him, what well, can I still work with you? And I know what I would say in that situation, which is no, um, because you'll just second guess me constantly. Um, and then I'll have to be on my way. You know, there's this saying that we learn in love, um, you know, everything except letting go, like the rest comes easy. We know how to hold on to somebody. We know how to kiss them. We know how to love them. But we forget like the last lesson in love, whether you're dealing with a parent or dealing with a company, is letting go. Um, And I don't think it's one that will ever come easy to me. Are are you actively trying to create that person right now, that the one who's going to be better Uh, at running the company than you? (laughs) Yes and no. (laughs) I mean, I think that I'm not looking to retire. I'm not tired of the job. I you know, there's part of me that just wants to hold on to it forever. And I think there's another part that knows it's my job to cultivate, you know, Bridget and Adam and Scott and Janie and, and all the people who work for me so that they can run companies one day. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully one of them will run Redfin one day. Um, I would be very remiss if I weren't trying to do that. Now, I, I love closing with uh, this question, which isn't necessarily tied to what we've talked about before, but you, there's an awful lot of sayings out there. And I talk about, you know, what advice would you give mm-hmm. your younger self? But is there something out there that you, some piece of advice that you wish people would stop sharing with each other? Like I, a friend called them cultural cliches. These, these little terms or quotes that go on walls that everyone just kind of mm-hmm. accepts. But when you see one of them, you kind of go, no, stop saying that. Is there one a, a cultural mm-hmm. cliche that you wish people would stop sharing? Everything happens for a reason. I mean, I think it's one you suggested at one point. And what drives me crazy about it is it's really deeply conservative that the way things are now is the way that they should be. That's not true. You know, I mean, not only are there children dying of cancer, but we have to acknowledge that the reason I'm the CEO of the company primarily is luck. And when we forget to feel lucky and to acknowledge that, you know, it wasn't because God thinks I deserve this job more than someone else or because I worked harder and that's the reason. No, a lot of it is luck. I was born in the richest country in the world as a white male um, and I wore that mantle well growing up. So uh, when people say that something happened for a reason, it's usually because you know, they're either trying to make sense of something terrible or because um, they're trying to tell themselves that something good is, is what we deserve. And I, I didn't deserve this. I just got lucky. And um, I, I just think it's important to it to acknowledge the place of luck in our lives Um, because otherwise we kind of lose all our empathy. We say, oh, well, that guy's, you know, homeless because, you know, he just didn't work hard enough or something like that. Well, maybe he could have worked harder, but maybe, maybe he couldn't have because of the whole world in which he was raised. So that is the one that drives me crazy. And part of it's because my wife is an oncologist and she meets people all the time where things happen to them for no reason at all. And they didn't deserve it. And, um, and I have to go to bed every night thinking that I, you know, I'm glad I don't have cancer and I'm glad that I'm healthy and I'm glad that I'm able to do what I'm doing. I'm really, really lucky. 
it's an incredibly good way to look at it. I think one thing I really loved uh, that I got from you as well, uh, not directly, but I, after I met you, I went and, and started looking at some of the things that you've said and written. And, and the idea that, yes, we're lucky, but we also have to work. And, and the idea of luck and work being connected. But I read something about mm-hmm. you saying, um, you know, your advice to a 22-year-old. And one of the things I'd always said is, oh, I spend my money on experiences, right? I move a lot, so I don't mm. accumulate a lot. But I was like, oh, I'll spend mm. your money on experiences. And then you changed my mind about telling people that sort of carte blanche, like, oh, go send your money on experiences. Tell, th- could you tell, I don't know if you remember this piece of advice that you once yeah. provided, but the, the, the challenge of saying to someone, oh, it's all about you know, discovering yourself and spending your money on experiences, yeah, 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 yeah. but you haven't become anything yet. Yeah, well... I- I, I think the challenge is that for me, you have to find something that you can do that makes you happy. And usually it's something productive. It's some kind of work. I know people who are happy while they're at an amusement park or happy while they're buying a dress at Nordstrom. But I think you need to have something that you can repetitively do that makes you happy, whether it's writing a book or coding software or uh, designing clothes, whatever it may be, you have to find some calling. And the only way you can develop that calling is by working hard. And so I do know people who kind of go through cycles of happiness and unhappiness where, you know, they spend a year searching for the perfect piece of sushi. Um, And there's something empty in that quest for me. Like, I don't want to deride that because, you know, one day I may want to take a year off and, you know, have my kids go see wild animals in Africa or whatever it may be. Um, We all have earned a break at different times, but especially when you're just starting out in life, um, you know, you have to really try a lot of different things and, and work in different callings until you find one that really you were born to do. And, um, and I think that's a process of trial and error, um, that can be sort of subverted or or circumvented by this idea that, you know, you're just going to take a year off to go find yourself. I took a year off between Plumtree and Redfin. It was harrowing. Um, you know, like there was a little bit of time where I kind of enjoyed it, but you know, I, I just felt like I wasn't helping other people that nobody was counting on me, that it was all about me. Um, and just trying to please myself. And I can only do that for a little while. Sooner or later, you got to put your shoulder to the wheel and make the world a better place for other people so that you have this sense of belonging and purpose and meaning. And so when I hear people, um, sort of looking inside themselves, um, I think that can quickly become sort of unsatisfying or even narcissistic. Um, whereas finding your place among other people and doing something useful that helps other people can be deeply gratifying. Um, and that's sort of the route I've tried to take. Well, amazing, my good man. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insight with the Day One Leadership listeners. It has been a singular pleasure getting to meet you, getting to work with you, and I hope we can continue to do so again. Thanks so much for being with us today. All right. Well, Drew, thanks. That was fun. And that will bring us to the end of another episode of the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Glenn Kalman, for being the guest this week. I hope you really enjoyed my conversation with him. I absolutely love working with him. He's an amazing guy. We've got a powerful episode on tap for you next week. We're going to be speaking to Michael Cameron, who is a businessman, a father, and an endurance athlete. And he's going to be talking about leadership in all of those contexts. But Michael has a particularly powerful story that deals with healing and forgiveness. Here's a bit of a preview. Yeah, if I pause, you'll know, you'll know why. This, this is going to be a little uh, challenging. But uh, on Oct- October 2nd of uh, 2015, uh, my girlfriend Colleen was ambushed on her driveway by an ex-boyfriend. Uh, she was shot and killed, and uh, he then killed himself. So yeah, life kind of sucked for for a while there. It's an extraordinary conversation with Mike next week when we move from talking about what it's like to get the most out of people in business, to push the most out of your own body and mind, but also how to tap into ideas of forgiveness and healing in leadership and life. It's a really remarkable conversation. I hope you come back. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this week and in other podcasts, please subscribe to us and give us a review on iTunes. We could really use a few more and push us a little bit farther and spread our reach a little bit more. 
It's been such a pleasure once again. I'm Drew Dudley. This is the Day One Leadership Podcast. This is day one. Every day is day one. We'll see you next week. Thank you.